Papa, we're on final. Final one six three three thanks. It's just after 4.30 in the afternoon, nearing the end of a 12-hour shift for the primary crew from Orange Air Ambulance. One last glance at the city before touchdown. Then... Yeah, man. All right, let's go, boys. A call comes in. It's a car crash near Grimsby, and we have to move. The patient, a woman in her 60s, is suffering from respiratory issues caused by a mass in her trachea. The patient is loaded into the helicopter. She's on oxygen, which has to be secured. And her condition causes the crew to alter their flight plans until we land at Sunnybrook Hospital just after 3 o'clock. From there, the patient was transferred by land. She'll meet up with her family at Toronto East General. Once care is transferred, we head back to Sunnybrook, where the crew's waiting. We're all human, so to be able to attempt to reassure the family that we're going to take care of their loved one, provide the best care that we possibly can, um, it's all that we can do, really. In Canada and many other countries, Trauma injuries are the top cause of death for people under the age of 40. Sadly, they steal away more years of productive life than any other notable chronic disease. When someone faces serious trauma, there's a 20% chance they won't survive. For those who do, they often live with permanent disabilities, mental health struggles, and a higher risk of suicide. In recent decades, various geographical areas, including Ontario, established trauma systems, designed to streamline care for severely injured patients. These systems strive to offer comprehensive trauma care through a public health lens. This includes rapid emergency medical services, access to specialized trauma care, and rehabilitation programs. In this episode, we'll explore the current landscape of adult and pediatric trauma care, shining a spotlight on Toronto's Level 1 trauma centers, namely Sunnybrook, St. Michael's, and SickKids Hospital. Additionally, we'll touch upon the nuances of civilian versus military trauma care and provide an overview of current trauma research. Before we dive into this episode, we would like to acknowledge that Toronto was founded on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. This meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples, and we're grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. We would like to acknowledge the long history of science and medicine as tools of oppression against Indigenous peoples and the barriers to healthcare that are still experienced by Indigenous peoples in Canada today. I'm Julia. And my name is Atifa. This is episode 122 of Raw Talk Podcast. I think it's important to think about trauma care geographically. I think when you think about Southern Ontario and specifically the GTA area, I think trauma care is um, world standard. I think we're, uh, we provide excellent trauma care, both from the pre-hospital system to the acute care community hospital and transfer to the uh, academic trauma centers, and then to rehab, I think um, we're second to none in the world. I think uh, recently, Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center was accredited as a, a level one trauma center by the American College of Surgeons under the leadership of Dr. Avery Nathans, who is uh, the trauma director at Sunnybrook. He's also uh, the medical director of the Trauma Quality Improvement Program of the American College of Surgeons. And so really the the trauma program at Sunnybrook and at 
in Toronto in general, which includes St. Michael's Hospital and uh, the Hospital for Sick Children, is is second to none. Now, I think if you, you know, there's different parts of Canada, obviously, with uh, different access to care. So if you consider, you know, what happens if you're injured in downtown Toronto or in Collingwood versus if you're injured near Hudson Bay and uh, how you access care and the time frames, it's uh, there are two different stories to be told. You just heard from Dr. Homer Tian, a trauma surgeon at the Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and the CEO of Orange, the Ontario Air Ambulance. He spoke about the high standard of trauma care in Southern Ontario and the collaborations between pre-hospital care and trauma centres. I think, uh, and I'll make this observation about the healthcare system in general, which is, you know, healthcare systems are very siloed in that we tend to develop healthcare systems around local regional hubs like hospitals, right? So they're, they're centered around the hospitals and everything flows into them. The challenge in an emergency particularly becomes what happens when you need to do things between these local regional hubs. In Toronto, I think there's very close collaboration between uh, pre-hospital, community hospitals, and uh, the trauma centers, that basically we have a a, a regional trauma network where there's ongoing discussion and discussion about quality issues that occur. And so I think uh, it's a very coordinated system so that if you are injured, say, in Collingwood, uh, there's a system of of, uh, municipal EMS that will take will that'll respond to the call through the um the the uh the 911 system however in that system there will also be a call based on what they perceive as the severity of the trauma under field trauma triage guidelines to orange and if they meet certain criteria the uh, helicopter might be dispatched to the scene as well and um, that system then coordinates both the land and air assets to the patient. If that patient uh, is loaded into the EMS into the land EMS first and goes to the uh, hospital in Collingwood, then there's a system that, you know, if the helicopter wasn't available, they'll go through uh, Critical Ontario, which is a call center and a bed finding center that helps community physicians access care and there's certain guidelines as to what uh, we think are appropriate uh, injury anatomic or physiologic considerations and um, they will uh, direct that physician to the closest trauma consultant and then there will be a discussion and a decision made to transport either by land or by air. But in some cases, sometimes the injury pattern is clear enough through field trauma triage guidelines, and that helicopter will meet that patient at the roadside in in the case of a motor vehicle collision, or they'll rendezvous at the local community hospital, and that patient will be flown directly to a trauma center. So I think that amount of uh, back sort of back office coordination has been set through different uh, venues through the Ministry of Health, through the Air Ambulance uh, Utilization Standard, but also by uh, coordination by regional trauma networks. So there's sort of a provincial level coordination aspect, but there's also uh, regional uh, networks that coordinate this care as well. Dr. Tian also described the journey of a patient once they're brought into the hospital's trauma bay. 
it's important to have like before that trauma patient rolls in is to have all the processes ready to make sure that the right staff and right equipment and all of that are ready to go when that trauma patient rolls in. You know, and so under the the American College Level One accreditation, right? The trauma the trauma team leader is got to be available basically almost immediately. The trauma surgeon has to be available within twenty minutes of uh, the level one call out of of a really critically injured patient, and we have a team of patient uh, of staff that are on pager. So that when the call out comes, they drop what they're doing. It's like a code pager, and then they report to the trauma bay. And so those that generally includes uh, the surgery, senior and junior residents, the orthopedic residents, the uh, anesthesia residents for the airway, and uh, two nurses for the trauma patient, and um, the trauma team leader who, at least at Sunnybrook and at most places, either is an emergency medicine physician, uh, anesthesia, or general surgery uh, trained. And so the um, so when that trauma patient, uh, you know, we first receive notification that that patient is arriving, the trauma pager goes off and the team is notified to come to meet them in the trauma bay. Um, you know, other facility, other parts of the hospital are notified, like the operating room, so that, you know, if they hear that a level one trauma, so the, the you know, a patient who's uh, hypotensive or really tachycardic with the with an increased risk of needing rapid surgical intervention, the OR is given notice that this patient is en route as well. So that, you know, if there's a uh, non-urgent case, they might hold it until we get clarification as to what the, uh, the actual status of that trauma patient is. So the trauma patient comes in and usually there's some communication between the trauma team leader and EMS. And then the team sort of gets report in an organized way from the EMS staff. And then they usually start with uh, the ABC assessments, right? And so in doing that, uh, everyone has a role. The, the trauma team leader stands back and it's like the conductor of an orchestra and takes in information and makes decisions based on say anesthesia's assessment of the airway. Uh, so, and breathing. So they'll hear about, uh, you know, the oxygen saturations, whether or not uh, on auscultation, there's good uh, air entry into the different uh, parts of the lungs. Um, you know, do they sound like they have obstructed breathing and make a decision about any airway interventions and breathing interventions. And then usually the general surgery team is, uh, is deciding if there's any major sites of hemorrhage while the nurses are getting IV access and ensuring that the vitals are taken. And so it tends to be a real coordinated work. So at a trauma center, all of this activity should be hap happening simultaneously as opposed to in, in a serial fashion. You know, at a smaller community hospital where there's limited resources, one physician might sequentially look at airway, then breathing, then circulation, but at a trauma center, it should be happening all in parallel. And the trauma center trauma room should be set up so that uh, all the equipment has been checked and is already there so that, you know, the, an uh, the anesthesia resident assessing airway, if they need to intubate the patient, that equipment is already there, labeled and checked, and so then they're not scrambling to look for the equipment. 
Same thing for IV setups and chest tubes and all of the sort of intervention. Usually uh, there's x-ray capability in that room. So at Sunnybrook and at St. Mike's, the, the x-ray will come and take the, uh, the radiographs on that trauma bay table. There's an ultrasound in the room so they, they can get a, a quick assessment of the abdomen and the chest uh, through ultrasonography. And um, usually blood can be called down very quickly and there's the ability to rapidly transfuse. So the idea is that, you know, the, those resources are brought quickly to the patient as opposed to having to go and uh, seek those out at all the different uh, places that you normally would have. Next, we spoke with Dr. Suzanne Benno, an emergency physician based at SickKids Hospital and the medical co-director of their trauma program at the Division of Pediatric Emergency Medicine. She shared her insights into the current standard of pediatric trauma care in Ontario, highlighting the collaborative nature of adult and pediatric trauma centres. Yeah, I can speak to the current standard of, of pediatric trauma care for sure. SickKids is a lead pediatric trauma hospital within the province of Ontario. It is one of three trauma programs within the greater Toronto area and partners very closely with Sunnybrook um, Health Sciences Centre and Unity Health and St. Michael's Hospital as part of the U of T trauma program. And the GTA trauma programs also work closely with community hospitals within our catchment area um, and collaborate as a regional trauma system. There is provincial oversight of trauma through the Ontario Trauma Advisory Committee that is under the umbrella of Critical Care Services Ontario. And as trauma programs, we all also collaborate nationally and internationally with other programs and within professional organizations and societies. We're curious to know how often do you see major traumas versus minor traumas and how many trauma cases on average does SickKids manage in a year? Our emergency department sees about 80,000 children per year, with about 20 to 25 percent of these children having an injury-related presentation. And our trauma team is activated about uh, 200 times per year, for 200 children per year. Uh, and these are patients who are involved in a significant mechanism presenting with serious or multi-system trauma. And about one third of these children are critically injured uh, and meet our trauma level one criteria. And these patients are physiologically unstable, need urgent or emergent surgical intervention or critical care. I don't have the latest data, but I believe we admit about 1000 children or so per year that require hospitalization for their injuries. We primarily see blunt trauma at our center with over 90% of our trauma activations from a blunt mechanism like a fall, uh, motor vehicle collisions um, with the kids either as occupants of the vehicle or being pedestrians or cyclists or on scooters, et cetera, and being struck by a vehicle. Other recreational and sports injuries are very common, home-related injuries uh, and assaults. And that's pretty standard for Canadian pediatric trauma centers. We do see some penetrating trauma. Um, it can be unintentional, like tree branches or recreational incidents that have gone wrong. But we also see violent trauma, such as stabbings and gunshot wounds, um, uh, about 10% of the trauma patients that we see. And a unique population in pediatrics that's very important to not forget about are infants and young children sustaining abusive physical trauma or more commonly known as non-accidental trauma or non-accidental injury. And this can be a cult uh, as they often don't present to the emergency department as a typical trauma activation, but they can have very serious injuries. Dr. Benno emphasized the collaborative nature of a standard trauma team and highlighted the unique considerations taken into account when working with pediatric patients. The medical team is a, a standard 
trauma team that you would see for all ages. So that's going to be a trauma team leader uh, in our institution. That's an emergency physician. Uh, there'll be a second emergency physician there bedside um, for assessment and any procedures that might be needed. We also have a general surgery fellow and an anesthesia trainee, either a fellow or a resident who are present for all of our activations. So we have standardly three emergency nurses who would respond to an activation and that number can be upscaled if the child's more ill or more injured and requires more nursing resources. Um, there is an x-ray tech who's present all the time to obtain any x-rays and assist with uploading images. A respiratory therapist, if required, will be there to assist with airway management and, and help with the ventilation needs. We have an information clerk who manages all the communication, uh, paging calls and so forth. And then... Um, and then maybe the pediatric nuances are that we have a specific designated support person always. So that is usually a social worker. It can be a child life uh, specialist. Um, it can be the trauma program manager um, who will stay with the family, um, provide support to the family. Uh, and we have a policy like many pediatric trauma centers uh, globally is that we support and encourage family presence throughout our activations and throughout our resuscitations. That relies on a family wishing to actually be there. Um, and if they do, then we provide that support so that they um, can engage uh, if and when they want to be uh, bedside with their child. And that designated support person then is that liaison between the family and the clinical team to determine the optimal time um, to do so. We do have child life specialists as well who independently um, uh, may be at the head of the bed, uh, particularly for conscious patients, uh, where um, the whole trauma process can be very intimidating for anybody and for a child uh, who is scared, who's hurt, uh, who's now being rolled into a trauma room with a whole team of people dressed in you know, their PPE who suddenly descend on a child. That's a, a frightful experience. And so um, the child life specialist's role is actually really important. So they're able to focus the child um, to um, uh, be psychological support for that child, but also then to be able to uh, direct the child to respond to them so that the team can accurately assess that child. Because that's one of the features that's difficult with pediatrics, of course, is their developmental status can make it challenging to actually assess their uh, injuries and condition. Children are extraordinarily resilient. They have amazing optimism, an amazing outlook on life, and, um, and, and physiologically, they can bounce back from injuries that would be more difficult for an adult to bounce back from. I, I would say that, you know, it's particularly humbling to look after children who are ill or injured, especially when you, you know, you meet children and families and sometimes the most horrific and vulnerable time points of their lives. You really internalize what a privilege it is to care for these incredible young humans and resilience and optimism seem to come naturally to them. So we're, we're inspired to do our best by them for them and their families uh, every single day. Orange provides air ambulance and critical care transport services committed to delivering life-saving care across the province. Established in 1977, Orange operates as a not-for-profit organization, ensuring swift and specialized medical transport for critically ill and injured patients. With access to air transport and state-of-the-art medical technology, Orange responds to emergencies, transfers patients between medical facilities, and serves remote and northern communities. The EMS system in Ontario is based on paramedics. Some jurisdictions, they use other healthcare providers, but Ontario is a paramedic jurisdiction. 
So the EMS system, the land EMS system is primarily responsible for 911 calls, but there's a whole system of what we call inter-facility transfer. So that orange in Ontario is the only paramedics that do it. So if you imagine that you're injured in Collingwood, so you arrive to the Collingwood Emerge, that physician will intubate that patient and put them on a mechanical ventilator. And if they're really sick, might start blood transfusions and might start them on infusions of these uh, like adrenaline. Once they do that, none of the land-based paramedics in Ontario can manage them and can't transport them. So the only service that can do that in Ontario are the critical care paramedics at Orange. So we would either fly by air or drive by land to pick up and transport those critically ill patients. So Orange is considered Ontario's critical care transport provider, either by air or by land. And we also do air transports in the far north that don't require a critical care level of care. Orange is what we call a complete service in terms of we have pilots, we have aviation mechanics, we have dispatch, we have obviously back office, and we have paramedics and physicians. Speaking of the diverse landscape of pre-hospital care, if you're interested in the role paramedics play in trauma care, go listen to episode 115 of Raw Talk Podcast. In that episode, we dive a little deeper into the world of paramedicine and gain an understanding of their pivotal role within emergency medical services. In our conversations about trauma care, we hear from Dr. Brody Nolan, who shares his experiences as trauma team leader at St. Michael's Hospital and as transport physician at Orange. I'm biased, but I think I have like the coolest job. Like I'm really lucky to have the variability in the clinical work that I do to be able to then pair that with research that really I get to drive with things that I'm interested in. And I really feel really fulfilled from all the different roles that I have. It's a challenging time to be in healthcare, right? Like like full stop. It's It's been a tough couple of years and we've got some challenges that are here to stay for a while. But I really enjoyed the variability in, in my clinical practice that I have. It's very different than my normal kind of emerge kind of grind or kind of going in and, and trying to get through patients. You know, an on trauma team leader, I have one patient in front of me for the most part. Sometimes we have a couple simultaneously, but for the most part, it's kind of one patient that I get to spend a couple of hours with. And I don't get that in any other clinical work that I do. And that's, that's kind of nice to not have to worry about, you know, the 40 or 50 patients in the waiting room and just to kind of focus on the one in front. And I love the team dynamics for it. Like there's a well-run resuscitation. It's just, it, it's a feel-good moment for everyone. I love the team that I have. It, it's it, and it's really dependent on on that team, right? That really kind of makes it or break it. Like, And then for, uh, being a transport physician for Orange is like a totally different skill set. First and foremost, most of it, you're in front of a compu- computer screen and a phone. So now you're practicing medicine, without ever actually seeing most of the patients that we're seeing. And a lot of it's really kind of a systems-based approach. You know, our, our job is really to provide medical direction to the paramedics that are transporting the patients. And, you know, luckily we have some of the most highly trained paramedics in the world, hands down, and they're amazingly brilliant and so skilled and run an entire ICU with either one of them in the back of a land truck or two of them in the back of a helicopter or airplane. And it's pretty amazing, all the stuff that they that they can do. And I have a lot of FOMO not being like out on the aircraft with them, which is mostly why I go on to pre-hospital care. But it's, it's a lot of talking on the phone, talking to sending facilities, kind of giving some guidance in the kind of intermediate of, you know, we've accepted the patient, we're on the way, or we're not quite there yet. And it's kind of, again, doing a bit of that bridge to care. And then kind of that systems focus for, again, you know, how, how best can we optimize things? You know, the challenge with that is more and more often we just have a 
a bunch of really sick patients uh, and limited resources. So a lot of it is also those triage decisions of, okay, we have one aircraft available and three really sick patients. This is going to be the one that we're going to have to go and the other ones are going to have to wait. And those are really challenging decisions that we have to make. But it's, um, it's, a, it's a really fun job. It's a lot of more like critical care in ICU, which again is something I don't do a lot of in my eMERGE practice. Uh, so a lot of, you know, ventilator adjustments, starting different pressers. So it's a, it's a good kind of augment. It certainly made me a better emergency physician. And then I think on the flip side, when I put my trauma lens to it, I kind of, you know, for bringing a trauma patient, I kind of know the expected course there. So sometimes it's easier to prepare the trauma centers that we're, that we're bringing patients to because I, I know what they need to know to better prep to get those patients ready if they, you know, if they need to go to the OR, for example, or have blood ready. It's, it's easier to kind of know some of that. But it's a lot of fun overall. <laughs> Beyond his role at Orange, Dr. Tian's expertise spans extensive trauma care in military settings. He is a colonel in the Canadian Armed Forces and has served as a trauma surgeon in Afghanistan and the former Yugoslavia. And I'll just uh, then give you a quick background. So in the role idea is, is NATO military speak, with role one essentially being primary care, Role two generally being a damage control surgery and resuscitation facility. So basically with general surgery, anesthesia, and limited holding capabilities. And then role three, usually having the more complete spectrum, including CT, diagnostic imaging, ortho, general surgery, et cetera. I think actually the military, and so I, I happen to be the trauma lead for the Canadian Armed Forces during the war in Afghanistan, Canada's involvement. You know, and I think what we tried to do is we took the lessons that we learned on the civilian side and applied them to the military setting. You know, and then obviously because of the volume, there were lessons learned in Afghanistan that were then applied back to the civilian side. So we took advantage of the situation and learned from each other in both cases civilian and military. And I think what we learned from the military side was the importance of having an organized system of, you know, uh, pre-hospital to trauma interfaces. Some of the things that we learned were the importance of bypassing smaller healthcare facilities on the battlefield to go to the, what would be the level one equivalent. So in the military parlance, the level one equivalent in on the battlefield would be the Roll 3 hospital. So we would bypass the Roll 2 hospital because there were fewer resources, fewer uh, specialists, and we'd go directly to the Roll 3. And having these sorts of arranged protocols was, was very important. One of the things, obviously, is the importance of having practice clinicians. And, you know, the idea of trauma centers are you have clinicians there who primarily do trauma work as opposed to community hospitals where they'll do, say, as a surgeon, regular cancer work or gallbladders and hernias and do the occasional trauma laparotomy. And the idea in the military was, you know, the military hospital system is usually consisting of fairly healthy young adults without a lot of uh, acute care problems. And so the Canadian side, we certainly uh, learn that and we place our specialists in Canadian level one trauma centers, ideally, so that they have ongoing clinical experience before deployment. I think one thing I'd like to point out is that the difference in the civilian and the military setting is the number of cases that are 
not trauma related, right? So, you know, every EMS system in the, in the civilian side deals with the full spectrum of medical and uh, surgical and injury emergencies. You know, on the trauma side, you have a system that's almost exclusively de uh, devoted to trauma, both battle and non-battle trauma. And so the protocols are different in some aspects, the training is different, and the uh, response times are, are different as well. From the civilian side to the military side, I think all the work around the importance of an organized trauma system with data and quality improvement and guidelines and protocols, that was something that the military learned from the civilian side. I think the uh, civilian side, what was really invented, and I, I say invented up with quotations, is the idea that tourniquets are important. So it's this whole focus on what we consider preventable causes of death and trauma, as opposed to the purest ABC paradigm that we learned you know, from first aid onwards to uh, advanced trauma life support. The idea in the military is that on the battlefield, there's only limited things that you can do. But if we focus on what uh, treating the preventable aspects of death instead of trying to intubate someone. And we, we know that intubating someone's a complex procedure, you know, in the mud and with the, the ongoing danger of, of the battlefield. It's probably a low yield procedure with high training requirements. But if we focus on things like someone was shot in the arm and was bleeding out, you know, putting on a tourniquet is a high yield procedure. Let's delve into the backbone of progress within any field, research. We discuss the significance of evidence-based practices and the impact of ongoing research on pushing the boundaries of knowledge and innovation in trauma care. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the role of evidence-driven practices in advancing pediatric trauma care, but also if you could give us some insights into what kinds of research are currently underway to help us improve pediatric trauma care. The role of evidence-based and data-driven practices is critically important in advancing trauma care. In situations where clinical acuity is high and time is of the essence, it's really vital that the interventions that we perform are actually grounded in evidence that reflects benefit. So for example, we don't we or we want to ensure that we're not tying up somewhat difficult and limited vascular access with medications that don't actually have a clinical benefit. Another example, if there is survival benefit to things like whole blood or freeze-dried plasma, or some of these things that are being um, uh, um, studied now, well, then we need that research to justify that so that our systems like Canadian Blood Services can produce it and our trauma systems can integrate it into the practice. And that integration of research is usually based in quality improvement strategies that include knowledge translation and simulation. And much of the really important work that's being done to integrate some of the research into clinical care and accounts for equity in translating that evidence-based knowledge to the bedside for all trauma patients and specifically for children. So organizations like TREC, I don't know if you're familiar with that, it's translates, translating emergency knowledge for kids and initiatives that improve pediatric readiness are instrumental in ensuring that the majority of children initially managed for severe or multi-system trauma are actually managed in the same care we would like to see across all pediatric trauma centers because those kids, the vast majority of children are actually seen in community hospitals before they're transferred over to a pediatric trauma hospital. 
So those hospitals and those providers need care guidelines that are user-friendly and, and reflect up-to-date evidence and strategies for stressful, high-acuity, low-frequency resuscitations like a sick pediatric trauma patient. And so there's many platforms um, through traditional education and through simulation, digital media, podcasts like this, where that uh, kind of information can be translated. So there's a lot of exciting research, I think, that's happening in trauma uh, in general. And as I said, the vast majority of the trauma research that moves the dial and advances the field of trauma is adult-based, as the numbers of trauma patients and specific outcomes of interests are so much higher in adults than children. And the ability to study these areas prospectively through cohorts and randomized controlled trials is, is therefore more feasible. There's a large amount of research in trauma that's focusing on the approach to hemorrhage and transfusion, identifying shock, proper activation of massive hemorrhage protocols, utilizing damage control strategies, and so forth. And this is an area where adult trials have definitely paved the way, um, and pediatric work is being done to try and understand if the findings are applicable to children and youth in our civilian populations. Our numbers to study in children are much lower, so the trials take longer, and we sometimes don't have the conclusions to definitively state benefit. So an example of this is the use of tranexamic acid in trauma. That's very standard management now with proven mortality benefit in adults 16 years of age and up. In pediatrics, there's increasing evidence, now prospective, that children likely have similar benefit, but we don't have the RCT data to definitively say that. I want to highlight an area of uh, pediatric research that really excels, and that is in the realm of diagnostic imaging. And we have emergency pediatric research networks like PCARN, PERC, PERN, that are multi-center and international and have started studied large cohorts of children, tens of thousands, to come up with very solid evidence-based decision rules to guide the CT imaging of children. And so these exist for minor head injury, intra-abdominal injury, as well as risk factors for cervical spine injury, and areas where the the evidence isn't as robust, like cervical spine injury and thoracic imaging, are where we tend to see the most adult extrapolation of trauma care. Dr. Nolan, a scientist at St. Michael's Hospital and research leader Orange, provides us with an overview of the current scope of trauma research. You know, we, we have really kind of covered the whole breadth of, of trauma, really from all the way from injury prevention through to the acute resuscitation phase, through the pre-hospital, the, the identification of injury of injured patients, how they get transported to the hospital, through to the acute resuscitation phase, all the way through to their, you know, acute care hospitalization, and then even the point of rehabilitation and then trying to prevent further injury after someone's already, you know, experienced, especially kind of violent injury. So there's really kind of quite a, a breadth of research going on within trauma. It really just kind of covered the, the full spectrum from kind of health policy and uh, health promotion and injury prevention, the science then of the disease processes itself and bleeding physiology and, and coagulopathy and brain injury and trauma systems and systems care and how that plays together. So it's a very, um, very broad topic and a lot of really exciting stuff that's kind of going on within our institution. My personal focus is really on the intersection of pre-hospital care uh, and the trauma system and through to acute trauma resuscitation, how that kind of plays plays in together. So I can probably speak to that a little bit more from, from personal experience. But I've always been interested in really how we identify severely injured patients in the field. We know that for trauma, you know, the time from injury to receiving specialized care at a lead trauma hospital is really important and saves lives. So trying to figure out how do we identify patients patients in the field that need to be brought to a lead trauma hospital, what care can we provide in that, you know, field forward environment, 
you know, these, the austere Canadian uh, winters uh, and try to provide them at, at best we can that in-hospital care in the out-of-hospital environment. And then how do the teams prepare for that through to that kind of first initial resuscitation period of, of when they show up in the trauma bay and we have the trauma team attending them. It's really where my kind of personal research interests lie. I never wanted to be a researcher. I know as a scientist, that sounds really bad, <laughs> but it, it never really was in the cards. I wrote undergrad and medical school really had no significant interest in doing it. But as I continued along, really is starting to get kind of more immersed in the healthcare system and residency, started seeing what are the things that we're doing right now that could be done better? How are the ways we're caring for patients that could be done better? What are the systems that are in play that could be done better? And my kind of lens was trying to use research as a way to understand those systems and those problems to then try to find a way to do things better. I'm not a quality improvement expert, but it's kind of a, you know, using more health services type of research, but with that kind of idea to try to flip it around to identify problems with the current care providing or solutions or better ways we can provide for that care for those patients and to do that. So with that, really one of the first kind of endeavors that I that I came down was really looking at access to trauma care. Now we know in Canada, we have a significant geographic challenge in getting access to a lead trauma hospital. And I said earlier that we know patients that are treated at a lead trauma hospital have a better chance of living then patients treated at a non-trauma center. And, you know, in, in Ontario, we only have nine adult lead trauma hospitals. About 40% of the population is more than a 60-minute drive to one of those centers. And about 15% of the population is more than a 60-minute kind of air ambulance ride to one of the lead trauma hospitals. And although it's been somewhat debunked, there's kind of this, you know, concept of the golden hour of trauma and trying to get those patients to a trauma center within, uh, within that first hour after injury. And so for a significant proportion of patients living in Ontario and in Canada, really, for that, that's just not possible. So a lot of my initial interest in research was trying to look at that problem that we have and try to come up with solutions, really with the lens of how are we actively identifying patients that need to go to a lead trauma hospital? How does the air ambulance system and how does Orange play a role into that? How do the land paramedic services play into that? And is there a way that we can do better than what we're doing right now? It also grew out of, you know, just again, kind of clinically working and, and finding things that seem to be ineffective. So when I put on my Orange hat, you know, as a transport physician, we have really eyes on the entire province for really the sickest patients that are moving. Uh, one of the other more recent things we've been we've been working on, which was definitely a, uh, if you want to talk about challenges of doing trauma, <laughs> trauma research, we can talk about that. But we've recently launched our trauma video review program at St. Michael's Hospital, which is really just a fancy way for saying that we put some cameras and microphones into our trauma bay, which is really where we care for our really severely injured patients, where the trauma team attends to the patients. And probably not surprisingly, you can imagine there are a lot of questions, concerns, changes for what our, our culture is for having recording all of our resuscitations. And that was a big challenge more, I think, in the anticipated concerns rather than some of the actual implement, implementation piece to it. But in the same way that that elite sports uh, athletes review all of their games and debrief afterwards so they can do better. The idea with using something like trauma video review is kind of the same. You know, maybe we're less likely to be sponsored and other things like that, but we're always wanting to do better. The team's always looking for ways to improve. And so to be able to, you know, use an actual video of your resuscitation and your teamwork and performance gives you way more information and insight than looking at a chart that has a couple of lines scribbled down every maybe some vital signs every couple of minutes but it's just hard to really ascertain a lot of the teamwork and dynamics from that and really using trauma video review is just so rich with data really from a quality improvement perspective and then certainly from a research perspective because it's like having a full research assistant in there monitoring everything with 100% reliability like it's great and then the other thing and this is I think something that's really interesting and really a first for Orange is actually getting involved in leading a clinical trial in the pre-hospital 
Digital Realm. And so what we're looking at doing is getting involved in a study that uh, looks at the use of whole blood as opposed to component blood therapy, specifically whole blood compared to red blood cells and plasma for the acute management of, of patients in hemorrhagic shock that are bleeding from injury. And so this is this is really cool. I mean, if you look back in the 1940s, when people donate blood, we would just keep it all as one whole package of, of whole blood. And that's what people get transfused later on. And then as the technology evolved, as the needs of people evolved, and the ability to store into different components, um, the idea is like all of the blood back for all of the different things. Like if someone just needs, if they're anemic, for example, they don't need plasma, they don't need platelets, they just need the red blood cells. And so we kind of pivoted to really doing primarily only component therapy. And then that's kind of spun out more recently in some big in the trauma literature for looking at what the optimal ratios for red blood cells to plasma to platelets. Looking at on the most part, it seems to be earring on the side that patients that are transfused closer to a one-to-one -one ratio or two-to-one-to-one -to -one ratio seem to have better outcomes than patients that have not that ratio. And so the idea with using whole blood is patients, when they bleed acutely, they bleed whole blood and all of the blood products. So why not give all of that back? And so there's a clinical trial that we'll be participating in um, through Orange, where essentially we will stock two units of whole blood on our uh, helicopter and have that compared to two units of red blood cells and plasma and correlate that to outcomes. And I'm really excited this from an Orange perspective, because this is really the first time that we're actually taking the lead and really leading a clinical trial. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities for us to participate in the study and also really create a network so that not just for this, but for future studies, really we can get the entire province uh, behind and having this coordinating network for doing pre-hospital uh, and trauma research. I think in 10 years time, that's really gonna be the standard is we're gonna be at a place that it's gonna be a personalized approach to trauma where we're gonna be able to do specific blood tests on specific people that will really tell us the specific treatments that they need as, support, as opposed to more of a one size fits all approach. We asked our guests to discuss some of the existing gaps and challenges within trauma care and research. How much time do you have? <laughs> just just to that point, yeah. Yeah, trauma research and leaving spended to it's really emergency care and resuscitation research is really challenging for a lot of things. I mean, and sometimes it's a simple thing. I mean, first and foremost, consent, right? Uh, I mean, a lot of patients, if you're going to be in a, a drug trial and compare drug A to drug B, your patient can talk to you, you can talk about the intervention, you can talk about the drugs, you can have them have a full informed consent discussion and sign papers and make sure they're going to agree to follow up and agree to be in the study. And most of the patients that were interested in treating for trauma can't consent, right? They're, they're abundant, they're unconscious, in cardiac arrest, you know, they, they have no pulse, they're dead, right? There's it, it's really hard. Um, I mean, it, it's really impossible to, to get consent for these patients. So we're acting under really um, under a deferred consent or waiver of consent model under an emergency consent policy. So there's some other things that kind of go along with that. But I think first and foremost, one of the challenges is, is just that it's really hard to get that consent in the process. And then the follow-up to that is often we still need to disclose that, you know, a, a patient was enrolled in a study and whether it's con with communicating with the patient or maybe with their family or substitute decision maker afterwards. And these are hard, right? Especially if these are patients that have died or, or suffered, you know, a, a traumatic injury or cardiac arrest. There's a lot of sensitivities for approaching these patients and approaching the families and trying to really have a, a you know, um, patient uh, lens for for talking about the study and, and, and what all that means. So I think it's actually probably one of the, the biggest barriers uh, for, for doing it. Not insurmountable, there's, there's stuff for us to do, but it, it certainly has a different consideration for doing a lot of research. You know, a couple of other issues I think are, it's from a funding point of view, right? Like when you think about 
who gets injured, it tends to be more vulnerable and more marginalized communities that uh, are a little more predisposed to getting injured, and they tend to be younger. And so you're less likely to have sort of um, donor-type interest or uh, resources spent uh, to try to fix that, right? Uh, and not that this is a wrong thing, but cardiovascular and cancer are leading causes of death, and they're leading causes of death in sort of more established communities of people. And so, you know, when we focus on those diseases, there's a bias towards that age group, that demographic, and, you know, and their ability to decide can sometimes affect what's funded or not. And so I think trauma trials tend to suffer a bit more from funding issues compared to cancer and uh, and cardiovascular trials. The military tends to sponsor a fair bit of trauma trials and that we've seen in the last few years. So that's been one solution to that, which is that uh, because of the recent conflicts around the world, there's an interest in how, how do we save lives of our soldiers that are deployed uh, overseas and on the battlefield. One other problem with trauma is that it's very heterogeneous, right? So when you, you know, so you, you have to believe that uh, bleeding from someone who shot in their aorta is different than someone who's hypotensive from a, you know, an injury to their arm, their brachial artery, versus someone who's got a smashed uh, liver or and a smashed spleen from a car accident. So you have to be, you know, there. It's a much more heterogeneous population that you're say in, enrolling in a bleeding trial for exsanguination. Whereas cancer or cardiovascular, I think the selection of the patients enrolled can be a little more focused and controlled. Certainly pediatric spans quite a quite an age range. So we're looking after infants right up to as we see up to the 16th birthday for trauma activations. But in some pediatric centers, they go up to the 18th birthday or even in some even up to the 21st. So you're essentially looking after infants all the way up to adults in terms of, of trauma care. So you really do need to know adult trauma care and be facile with the unique differences and challenges in, in pediatric trauma care as well. One of the greatest challenges is really simply, um, uh, as I mentioned, the, the volumes are so much lower, which is a great thing for society uh, that children aren't getting hurt nearly as much as adults are. And that's mo mostly because they just make up a smaller portion of the population. But by not having larger volumes, it places uh, quite an emphasis on the uh, simulation in order to be um, competent and facile so that when these patients come in, you're able to provide that same uh, standard of care. I think that, you know, that challenge of maintaining skills um, when volumes are low uh, is overcome by a big focus on education and simulation. I think another major challenge, however, though, is that because volumes are low, that also means that uh, most people in a pediatric uh, hospital, um, trauma is not their first uh, specialty or priority. Uh, and so, um, you know, one of our one of our challenges is ensuring that we have dedicated people who are trauma trained and really, really um 
interested, engaged, and enthusiastic about advancing pediatric trauma care. I think it's also just challenging when you have smaller volumes um, is that the field doesn't advance quite as quickly. So when you have large volumes, you're going to have more people interested. You're going to have more uh, patients to do research with. You're going to have more people doing that research. So one of the challenges is um, sometimes not having the evidence to apply to our patients and having to extrapolate uh, the research and evidence from adult trauma studies. As we come to the end of this episode, we invited our guests to share memorable stories from their careers and offer some parting words of wisdom to our listeners. I, I will share something, and it's uh, it's funny. It's certainly not the, the uh, highlight in terms of my accomplishments, but I, I think it's an important... Uh, like I share it with my kids actually, as I think it's an important life lesson, which, and, and this is the story, which is um, when I was a young physician in the military, we were uh, in the former Yugoslavia, and I was asked to identify a set of remains uh, on a distant battlefield. They just uncovered them after the winter, and it was a scarce set of remains. And uh, so I was brought uh, with this uh, senior officer to the site of these remains, and I had a look at them. And really, they really represented sort of the backbone and one half set of ribs. And, you know, I wasn't really an expert in comparative anatomy or anything. And so my, my short answer was, I have no idea if this is human or not. And then their, uh, their answer was, we came a long way here you have to decide, right? And so then, you know, in my view, it was, well, what's, if I'm going to make a mistake, where where would I like the mistake to be made at? And so I, obviously I chose, I'm going to guess that this is human because I would much rather uh, see a, an animal treated as a human than a human treated as an animal remains. And sure enough, so they had a bit of a military ceremony for this uh the remains, they um, took them to uh, Sarajevo. Uh, and so it sort of became known like two weeks later as a news item amongst NATO forces that there was a goat <laughs> that was that was uh, treated with full military honors and brought to Sarajevo where it was uh, encountered. It was identified as a goat. And so, uh, you know, and so, uh, you know, Obviously, military folk the way they are, someone had found a goat skull and put it on my bed. And then uh, someone had, you know, I was playing chess with a British medical officer. This is actually how I heard he, you know, in the middle of a tight game, he slowly brought out that, uh, that oh, I heard that uh, from NATO headquarters that a goat was uh, buried as a human. And uh, he was trying to obviously distract me from my game, which he was successful at. But I, I thought that the lesson was really that, um, you know, it's okay to make, I think, you know, we, we play high stakes in medicine. So we should always err on the side of our um, patients or our or, or people, because even at the risk of looking silly, because I think as a resident, we often don't want to call the staff or someone else for help because we're afraid of looking silly. But I think it's a good reminder that, you know what, like 30, like I looked really silly, let me tell you. And I took a while to live it down. But, you know, 30 years later, 
I don't regret it at all. And it's a good story. Whereas I think you might regret um, not asking for help and having a bad outcome. I'm very proud of the Sick Kids Trauma Program and the development of this program in the last nine years since I've been involved in co-directing it. Um, we have and continue to constantly push this program forward so that the standards of care we're providing are fully reflective of peer trauma programs and in some situations surpasses them. I think we'll always have a lot to work on, but the support and age engagement by our program members and partners that I'm seeing now is very inspiring to me. And I have no doubt that we will continue to advance and reach milestones that we did not think we could uh, 10 years ago. So that that is an important uh, accomplishment in my career that I'm that I'm proud of and, and my role, my role in that. I think that, you know, there are many memorable patients who've uh, impacted myself and our team, um, some who've survived and are thriving and some sadly who have not. And, and as I mentioned before, when, when you meet those children and families in these situations, it's, um, it leaves an impact, it leaves a mark, and it, uh, it really um, internalizes what a privilege it is to care for these, uh, for these young patients who are, are incredible. Uh, as you pointed out, their resilience and their optimism is, uh, is something to behold. You know, the, the downside of having so many clinical uh, interests and then clinical interests that are all shift work is, you know, all of those involve holidays and weekends and nights. Um, so that, that's hard, right? Like that's all time away from family. And, um, but it, uh, um, it's just kind of what it is, right? Like it's kind of what you sign up for, for, for doing a merge is you're, you're there for shift work and doing call if you're in a place that you're going to have to do call. So, um, that's okay. But, um, I think one of the things I'm most proud of right now, and it's kind of still kind of getting a bit of like a boots off the ground is, um, getting a research, um, group together. So we've, we started a, a research group out of St. Mike's called First 60. It's really thinking about the first 60 minutes after injury and illness. Um, what we're really doing is trying to pull together all the different scientists and investigators, um, you know, students, collaborators that we have together um, to try to, you know, um, put a brand to it, a name to it, um, and to kind of grow that uh, as an opportunity to really show and highlight all the work that's being done um, at St. Michael's in Toronto. Um, really, so we can kind of present ourselves kind of at that world stage. Um, and I'm incredibly proud of really just in the last, you know, 12 months, since we've kind of assembled uh, all the work that's uh, kind of coming together. And I'm really excited to, to follow that through and to see where this goes in, uh, you know, another 12 months time. Um, but um, that would be one that I think is, I'm, I'm really excited for just to kind of, it's something that I feel like I've, you know, um, helped grow. I think it's going to continue to grow and hopefully be here for a while. Research is a grind. Like it's, uh, it, uh, uh, it's a, it's a lot. Um, and there's going to be like times that it, it seems really overwhelming and so many things to do. But I think like first and foremost, you know, um, if you're lucky enough to find um, either one of a project that you feel, you know, invested in, um, that is of interest to you, um, I think that's really kind of the number one priority if you if you, you know, haven't quite settled down anything. Um, or second, that is really finding um, either a supervisor or a team that you feel supported from. And I think that's that's really important. You know, like um, going through community, I think, is is kind of everything to kind of help you get through. Um, and having those supports in place will, I think, 
kind of help push you through to, to be a better person and, and to learn, you know, um, really from everyone else. Right. I mean, uh, um, I've been able to, um, you know, kind of do the, the work that I'm doing, not because I did it during my grad studies, but because I've kind of taken along with other projects and saw how things were done. And then, you know, got to lead a similar project afterwards. It's kind of a bit of that mantra of kind of, you know, see one, do one, teach one. And you kind of very quickly, uh, can kind of master all of that. But yeah, like if, if, find something that interests you because it's going to be a long, long grind if, uh, uh, if you're not interested that in the work that you're doing uh, or flip to that is find a team um, that you're really interested in, you feel supported from. Um, and, and hopefully if you have one or both of those things, then um, it'll be a, an, easier, an easier time for you. As always, a very special thanks to our guests, Drs. Homer Tien, Suzanne Benno, and Brody Nolan. And of course, thank you for listening. This episode was hosted by Atifa and Julia. Anissa, Julia, and Atifa conducted the interviews. Anissa and Vina helped develop content. Angela was our audio engineer. Radha helped with episode promotions. And Atifa was our executive producer. Keep an eye out for an article written by our science writer, Vina. Until next time. Talk podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Sciences and the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and be sure to leave us five stars.